0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Welcome one and all. Thank you everyone for joining us from around the country and the world. My name is Cecily Meyer Cruz and I wanna thank everyone for joining us in this crucial conversation, the struggle for police free schools and an equitable safe reopening. I am the United Teachers Los Angeles president. I'm a 26 year educator. My specialty is middle school English. I am born and raised in Los Angeles. I breathe and eat and sleep, social justice advocacy for our students, our educators and our communities. Before we get started, I wanna thank the sponsors of this event, the Baltimore Teachers Union, Boston Teachers Union, Chicago Teachers Union, Journey for Justice, Little Rock Education Association, Massachusetts Teachers Association, National Educators United, and United Teachers Los Angeles. Police presence in our schools, we know leads to a negative outcome for our students. They are arrested, disciplined at higher rates than their peers. The height is criminalization of our youth and leads them directly into the school to prison pipeline. It is upon us as educators to not only break that pipeline, but demolish it. But we also have to dismantle the structural and institutional racism that is so prevalent in our very lives, as well as our schools. As educators, it is up to us to dismantle this for our youth. When I look and I see students I don't see them as the future. I see students as the now. And so now is the time for us to raise our voices in unison, not only with students, but in unison with community and with educators and with organizations that we can stop this. We can put an end to trauma. We can put an end to policing. We can put an end to criminalization. And that's why these panelists are so important to be here today, to speak in one voice on that and call you to action, that we look at ourselves, and say, now is the time to be bold. So I'm going to go right now to Priyana from Milwaukee. (laughs) And I want you to tell us, talk to us, speak to us, and let the folks watching know what you have been struggling for. Thank you, Priyana.
2: You. Hello, everyone. My name is Priyanka Cabral. I'm a high school student in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and a fellow with our local youth of color-led organization, Leaders Igniting Transformation. I, along with many other youth of color in Milwaukee, worked with Lit to spark the initiative to end all forms of policing in our schools. Lit's journey to police-free schools began over two and a half years ago. Black and brown students have been advocating, advocating for police-free schools for quite a while, as they were able to acknowledge the harm that has come from it. Having police in schools create more hostile interactions that put our students of color in more danger. The police officers making us feel uncomfortable in school are no different than the ones making us feel afraid on the streets. Clearly what we are doing now is ineffective and it is time for a change. Studies have shown that schools become dependent on SROs and file a higher number of nonviolent crimes. Furthermore, criminalizing normal youthful behavior. Districts also spend lots of money on arresting us and sending us into the criminal legal system. Not only is it funding the criminalization of students, it also leads to the school to prison to deportation pipeline. There is so much police brutality that is carelessly and constantly harmed black and brown people. I'm tired of seeing more and more students' lives being taken and harmed by those who have sworn to protect it. Throughout our fight, we built power with black and brown young people. Over time, we began to recruit more and more students by implementing chapters in schools while introducing students to pressing issues that impact our everyday lives. At first, it was common for adults to to attempt to invalidate our experiences, the the experiences of youth of color. However, we never gave up. We continue to consistently show up to school board meetings, host events to uplift youth voices and be persistent when voicing our demands. Last month, we won a major victory. We won the divestment from all forms of criminalizing equipment in schools, such as metal detectors, facial rec- recognition technology, and the, the ability to watch over social media accounts of students, along with the termination of all contracts between our school districts and the police department. It is a victory based on the years of organizing by black and brown young people like myself. Based on our demands, now the district is able to instead invest this money that was first used to go, to go towards harming and policing us instead into alternative proactive safety measures such as restorative justice practices, culturally responsive education, and an increased number of licensed professionals in school. This includes nurses, counselors, and others who can serve as support staff, all of which have been all of which have been proven to be a more effective way that promotes a safer school environment. Although it was the recent national tragedies and uprisings that sparked this discussion nationwide, it is the hard and long-lasting work and determination of students of color that accomplished it. Now we are one step closer to the dismantling of the schools of prison's deportation pipeline and all other systemic inequalities in our education system. School districts are responsible for students seven hours a day, five days a week for 10 months out the year. This is the ideal space to tend to our youth's physical and mental needs. People who choose to remain ignorant towards the harm inflicted upon students of color by policing us and not taking the necessary steps towards change are part of the problem. In the wake of the recent tragedies, it is important now more than ever to be a part of the solution. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Priyana. Give it up for our youth transforming uh, what it looks like to lead in this moment. So now I'm gonna go over to Maura. Casados Cassidy from Denver, a mom who's in this fight. Go ahead, Maura.
3: Hi, folks. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I'm so, so honored to be here. Um, I've been a classroom teacher. This is going into my ninth year. Um, and I'm hoping just to share my perspective as a teacher today as I've engaged in this struggle for justice. And, you know, one of the things that came to mind when I was thinking about this panel today was an insight that I've had come up over and over again, which is as I've engaged in different struggles, whether it's a struggle over financing or budgets, whether it's a struggle to safely return to schools or whether it's a struggle about getting cops off of our campuses, um, they are all fundamentally related, right? They're fundamentally related to an ongoing struggle to make public education a right for all. Um, And that means being anti-racist. And that means especially fighting for the rights of working class and particularly students of color. Um, So, you know, I want to speak today to that um, and through some of my experiences. Right. One of the things that's come up over and over again as I've entered into, you know, trying to promote whether it's BLM in the schools week or whether it's kind of coming up with these social justice issues that have emerged as a result of the COVID crisis is that you have to explain over and over and over again. And I think of um, this Thomas Sankara quote. He is a leader of Burkina Faso, a really cool revolutionary guy And he said, you know, revolutionaries can never get tired of explaining. We have to explain things over and over again, because once people understand us, they'll come with us. And I'm paraphrasing here. But, you know, that's one thing I want to impart today is that part of our role as anti-racist educators, and especially as white educators in this movement, is opening up conversations with our colleagues, with anybody who will listen to us, frankly, um, about these difficult issues. And that doesn't mean just the issues that are considered part of our purview as classroom teachers, right? It's important for us to talk about moving away from these racist standardized tests. It's important for us to talk about unfair disciplinary practices in school. Those things are real. But we also need to move beyond that and start to talk about some of the structural realities that shape the world that our students live in. Right. We need to talk about budgets and laws and housing, um, because a lot of times. And I don't want to sugarcoat it, right? There are educators out there who are straight up racist. And those are folks who maybe are not going to benefit from these conversations. But there's also a lot of people out there who've been silent for a variety of other reasons, right? Maybe they're cynical because they haven't gotten the support that they needed. Maybe they're afraid of something. Maybe they're ignorant about the realities they need to understand in order to come and be a part of this movement. Um, You know, I've had colleagues who say, I one keep cops into schools because I'm afraid of school shootings in Denver. That's been a really big issue here. Um, but the truth is, right after 20 years of pushing police into mostly oppressed communities, we haven't seen a school resource officer stop even one school shooting. And that's information that folks that folks maybe don't know, right? We have. I've had colleagues say to me, "I'm not sure how to de-escalate a student who's experienced trauma when they get aggressive." But at the same time, we don't have the mental health staff in our schools to even touch, well, the services that students would actually need to heal from that. Um, so, you know, I'll leave it at that for my opening comment. But, you know, I think part of what I want to emphasize today is just opening up these conversations as, as one thing, meeting people where they're at, um, but also deepening those conversations into the structural realities that kind of we're asked to ignore, right? We're asked to think about what we can control and ignore everything else. Well, what we can control is expanding and changing every day. So now's a good time to start to feel optimistic about that.
1: Thank you, Maura. Wow. All right. A lot to really process and think through. So I hope that folks are trying to figure out what kinds of of good questions you want to ask um, our panelists uh, when the time is right. So now, lastly, on our panel, Jonathan Stith, Alliance for Educational Justice, based in Washington, D.C., Wearing the shirt, Police Free Schools Organizer. Talk to us, brother. Tell us uh, what's happening.
4: Absolutely. Um, before I begin, um, I want to just dedicate my, my talk to Raheem Brown who was the young person who was killed in Oakland. That was the, the seed um, that they thought they had buried that became the campaign uh, to win police free schools. Um, part of uh, the some of what who we carry in our heart uh, here at the Alliance. Also want to dedicate this talk to LaPortia Massey, who was a middle schooler in Philadelphia who died from an asthma attack because there wasn't a nurse in her school. Uh, and that next year, the Philadelphia school, school system uh, doubled down on the number of police uh, and still offered no, no, uh, no nurses. Uh, I dedicate this talk to George Carter III. Who was a young person from New Orleans uh, who we lost um, ag- again like so many young people uh, no neighborhood no uh, neighborhood school in his uh, in his neighborhood after Katrina and was killed by another young person uh, on his way to school uh, at, at like seven 6:30 six, six in the morning um, because he has to travel across town to a, to a charter school Um Uh, and who was criminalized by the New Orleans Police Department in his death. Uh, And then I dedicate this conversation, this talk, to Amber Evans, who was an organizer of Ohio, um, uh, who we lost uh, almost a year and a half ago, and excited to report that uh, in her hometown, Columbus, they have just won uh, police-free schools. And so excited to bring that and to know that uh, in our loss, uh, we are still gaining, we're still moving forward. Again, my name is Jonathan Stith, I'm the National Director for the Alliance for Educational Justice (AJ) is a national network of thirty youth-led and intergenerational groups who have been fighting since 2008 to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, uh, and have been uh, part of the leadership along with the Advancement Project for the, of the national campaign for police-free schools, uh, which we've seen so many uh, cities now uh, turning to, uh, to to dismantle the relationship between themselves and school police departments, uh, and. We're just, it's uh, really excited about to have this conversation and talk about the connections between uh, uh, COVID and and cops and uh, and for us, part of what we understand what a police-free school is, is uh, as Priya said, it's about dismantling uh, policing infrastructure. It's about in, uh, interrupting, dismantling uh, policing culture and practice in our schools, and building a new liberatory education system. And for many of us, for myself and many folks in the Alliance, we found ourselves kind of almost shaped by our conditions to move towards abolition. And this idea that uh, uh, that uh, on some levels, our school, it wasn't a school to prison pipeline. They were already prisons. And so abolition seemed the only uh, viable ideology that was going to move us towards uh, what we care about. And so, and then if we understand the history of uh, policing in our, uh, in this country, starting at slave catchers, then we also ground ourselves in the history of knowing that the average uh, age of a runaway slave during that time was a young person between the ages of 13 and 29. And so we can see that they only chased us uh, from the plantation into our schools. And what we see with Pre and so many others, a decision to turn around and fight for a new way, a new vision. And we're excited to uh, to talk more about that and what is possible uh, on the other side uh, of this moment.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan. Um, and let's just give it up for all our panelists. So now I'm going to um, mix it up a little bit. And uh, before we get into actual panel, uh, rather, before we get into the Q&A, we're gonna just have you speak on a topic. And so um, I'm gonna go to Mora first, and I'm going to ask you this question to say, you spoke a lot in your talk, and spoke on being anti-racist, actively anti-racist. So educators in this moment right now, where we are in this crossroads that I'm I'm naming crossroads and hope, right? Crossroads and hope. Educators in this moment, what is the most pressing issues that you see right now for us to move forward. Maybe there's someone in the audience, Maura, that is on the fence, doesn't understand why we should have police-free schools, doesn't understand why we should be actively anti-racist. Please speak to that.
3: All right, right on. Um, So I guess to me, it seems like right now, There's a movement coalescing around the idea that our schools should be a safe haven for students Um, and that safety does not only mean physical safety, but it also means for students to have mental health and emotional safety and to be protected from the violence of poverty and and policing and criminalization. So, you know, as we see, a lot of educators are coming out of the woodwork right now to say, hey, we don't want to go and put our lives on the line to return to work under the conditions of a global pandemic, that's not safe for us. It's not safe for our communities. And I think there's a connection between that and the work that's being done against policing and criminalization of our, of our students in schools, right? Um, you know, one thing I think is really important to understand about the connection between those struggles for safety is that we've found a lot of hope in trying to understand budgets as moral documents. And oftentimes a lot of the struggles that we're engaging in have to do with money, right? Funds are being wasted to militarize our schools and taken out of communities where poverty is being deepened, where police brutality has continued unabated, right? And the prison state has grown. Um, At the same time, right, we became teachers because we know that school is a place where kids should be able to learn and discover themselves in like a nurturing community, right? Not where they're going to be profiled, not where they're going to have their lives on the line because of some virus. Um, So... When we engage in these struggles, right, we need to look at the budget of our city, the budget of our country, the budget of our school district. You know, in Denver, more than a third of the city spending goes to cops, but not a penny goes to decreasing class sizes. We have a country where we're spending more than a trillion dollars on the military, and we have doctors and nurses wearing trash bags because they can't afford protective equipment. Um, So, you know, as we enter into kind of uniting these struggles, we have to understand, right, that when we demand resources, we're also demanding a more humane way of life, right? Something that recognizes our essential humanity and our right um, to nurture our children in our communities. So I think that's coming up in a bunch of different ways. And it's part of our job as activists to kind of enter into that conversation and, and provide some, some clarity about the big picture and how we can connect the dots. Okay, thank you. Um,
1: I want to just jump in and and thank you, Maura. Um, I want to make sure to uh, let everyone know um, because some folks may have just been tuning in. Uh, We have dynamic panelists. We have Maura Casados cassidy out of Denver. We have Priyana Cabral coming to you from Milwaukee. And then we have Jonathan Stiff um, A.E.J. coming to you from Washington, D.C., and I'm your host, uh, Cecily Meyer Cruz out of Los Angeles. And we're talking about police free schools. We're talking about what is it going to take to move this conversation? I keep saying it's a crossroads between horror and hope you know, um, criminalization and aspiration. Where where are we? How do we get there? Uh, A lot of folks have been talking about Black Lives Matter like it's a new phenomenon. It is not. Black lives have always mattered. Now it's all here in front of us. Right. I said COVID laid bare our inequities, but the COVID pandemic really showed the global, all the world was able to see what happened to George Floyd. Now, like, let's make no mistake about that. We know that this has been happening, especially in black and brown communities, for a long time. But now everyone was able to watch uh, someone say they can't breathe. I thought it was 20, 30 years ago when we brought it to Spike Lee, uh, Radio Raheem, 1989, do the right thing, I can't breathe. Then Eric Garner, now George Floyd, and the countless others. What will it take? This is our time. So when we look at Black Lives Matter, and they've always mattered and we talk about all Black Lives Matter, that includes trans and non-binary friends um, as well. We have to say that we have to take root that this is the now. We must talk and teach about Black lives. There could be no other excuse for that, especially right now. Black Lives Matter the Movement for Black Lives, what we are pushing forward in the conversation around letting us reopen or re-engage in physical school to say we have to have needs met because no longer will the Black community be sacrificed. So I just wanted to put that there and also say that August 3rd is a day of action. It's a day of collectiveness to get in this fight. Whether you've been standing on the sidelines, now's the time to jump in. This is going to be your time to step in the gap and say, how do we address this? Are we going to be just protesting? Are you going to join a caravan? I'm going to talk to you a little bit more, but now I want to jump on to talking with Priyana. So Priyana, youth have been leading in this moment. You have been out there, you described it. What do you need from us as adults? What do you need from us as community and what do you need from us as educators? Talk to us, sister.
2: Well, considering this is a movement led by Youth of Color, based on the experiences that are constantly being endured by Youth of Color, the best thing that educators and adults can do to support us is to listen. Listen. Because the young people who are most at risk of harm due to policing are best able to lead the dialogue about developing truly safe and supportive schools. We have a vision for safe, supportive, and inclusive schools. In in order to create a new way of valuing the dignity of students, educators must center the experience and expertise of young people to develop these policies that follow our vision. Allies to young people need to follow the lead of black and brown youth who are demanding police-free schools. They need to listen to the experiences, problems, and solutions being proposed by us, the youth of color. Because, in my opinion, adults and educators do not belong at the front line leading the fight to what our ideal safe school should look like. Adults belong uh, in the back, listening to our stories, acknowledging our struggle, and supporting us and advocating for our change. Because in the end, we are the ones that are going through this. And when the youth the youth of color are telling you that this is not working, and when the youth of color are telling you that having police in our in my school makes me feel unsafe, just like having police on my streets makes me feel unsafe, then you need to listen because you are not the one in those schools. You need to support me when I tell you that this is how I feel. And you need to advocate for us when we tell you that we we don't want this to happen anymore, that we need something new, that this is what we keep trying. And we keep trying different ways of policing in schools, whether that's security in schools or police officers or SROs, and none of them are working. I'm tired of being criminalized in my school. I'm tired of feeling like a prison when I walk into my school. I'm tired of seeing the racial disparities between my school and the white suburban school. And this is what I'm telling you guys. So you guys just need to listen and support us in any way necessary. Yeah.
1: Well, if that wasn't ever a mic drop, I don't know what it was. Frianna, <laughs> thank you so much for saying what you said. and to the audience. I'm an educator as well. We're educators here. I want you to actually soak in and listen to what Priyana is saying. Our times in school are behind us. We may have felt like Priyana at one time or we may not have. So I'm asking our viewers right now to listen to Priyana, listen to other youth like Priyana in this fight, because we've got to listen to our youth, because they're asking us to, and they're demanding us to change. It's not about an individual. It's about what the youth are feeling in this moment and in the schools. This is our time to listen. Thank you so much, Priyana. Jonathan, I know you were were like vibing. So here's a question for you, my brother. What do you say to school leaders who agree with no police in the schools but don't want to lose the support from families? What do you say to that?
4: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I listened to Brianna. <laughs> um, I I think it's a it's a uh, it's a. It, yeah, I'm curious around what families are saying. I think there's a lot of myth busting that we have to do, and in in that conversation, there's a lot of creative conversations to be had. Uh, I think Maura talked about it a little bit. Uh, she said, "Not one. I'll, you have to give them a little bit credit, but they looked at two over 200 school shootings, and only two have been stopped uh, by school resource officers. Tragically, the uh, the most deadly and tragic school shooting that we experienced uh, in this country, there was an SRO on site, and that SRO uh, did not stop it. In fact, he went and hid." And on top of that, there was a law, a, law, a case that came out later uh, in Florida that ruled that police uh, didn't have uh, a responsibility to protect students. So there's a lot to be raised uh, and to thought about this question around uh, the question of school shootings. Often too, also what we say too is, uh, by the time a young person has picked up a gun uh, to uh, to shoot a school, it's already too late. And part of what Priyan and other young people are saying is, how do we create the kind of cultures, uh, the infrastructure in our schools uh, that make that don't make that an even an option, right? And so there's a larger conversation that happens that needs to happen in schools around. Um, How do we create the kind of environments where our young people feel nurtured and cared for, seen and not criminalized? Uh, I think for the alliance, we, you know, we have some very uh, key strategies that we ask uh, communities and school leaders to look at, um, because again, we understand that ending the contract with policing is just one aspect of policing. And as we say, the uh, with Priyana and so many of others have who have won police-free schools, we say that's just the beginning of struggle. It's that's not the end, right? And that there's so much more to build. And so we we uh, challenge folks to have a conversation around uh, decriminalization, looking at the law that criminalize young people in their classrooms. Again, we looked at, uh, I entered this fight um, at, in 2015 with the assault at Spring Valley uh, with, uh, with the video recording of, by Naya of uh, Shikara, a soon student being choked and um, slammed by an officer. Um, and we looked at over, a, and we were able to document um, and, re- and try to build rapid response to over 114 assaults. And when we looked at those assaults, oftentimes the young people are the ones uh, catching charges. Uh, The things that young people were uh, getting criminalized for were normal youth behaviors. Um, And so we have to ask a question around, that. We also uh, ask folks to look at the investment. How much is a school your community investing in policing young people versus investing in, in their development? That's a very clear question. Uh, eyes. De- so You have to have some real data, right? I encourage uh, the conversations to like, what, what are we, what's really happening? What's the real story in policing in Chicago, one of the cities that is still struggling to win police-free schools? Um, at one point, they didn't know how many uh, police officers were in Chicago schools, right? And so there's some real uh, information and data. And most people don't know the data around it. Every time we would help a community figure out how to rapidly respond to an assault, one of the first things they would note was that they didn't even know the level of policing that was was happening in their schools. Uh, The third one, we have to look at deprioritizing, right? How do schools and communities make police an instrument of last resort? What we saw in Oakland uh, and what they uh, documented was that the teachers were calling the the police 6,000 times a year. On students, on black students, right, and we've seen similar numbers in Durham at four thousand in Birmingham at another. So we got to ask ourselves, uh, what, why are we calling police in? So even if we remove or end the contract, there's still work to be done to address the culture that makes a teacher want to call uh, the cops on a on a on a black student, uh, knowing that this could be uh, the end of his or her life, right? From what we've seen. Uh, and de- demilitarize, right? Maura talked about it. The amount that we spend on metal detectors, and some school districts, like LA, that just won a, a massive reduction, right? They were getting uh, armored tanks and uh, and transformers and all kind of stuff. Well, they didn't get transformers, but <laughs> but they were That's getting the military idea. aid from the from the federal 1033 program, uh, and all of that is ultimately. About how do we end the relationship between uh, police and schools, right? And I think that's the ultimate question: is like how do we create an environment that they are never necessary? And that takes a lot of will, that takes a lot of courage uh, and determination. And I think school leaders have it within them uh, to do that. Thank you,
1: Jonathan. I mean, you know, we can we can snap on that one all day. Yes, Freyana. Thank you, for helping me out. All right. So y'all have, you know, uh, many of y'all are on uh, Twitter. We know that, um, the president Trump, um, took to Twitter just the other day, and then he doubled down further. Right. Saying that schools need to reopen. Um, so here, here's a question and, and let me see, you know, let me just throw it out there. Um, so Trump is trying to reopen schools with cops, but not additional resources in a global pandemic. What do you think we need to demand and win in this moment? So I'll, I'll hit it to you, more first as a unionized teacher, then I will go to Priyana, same question, for talking about the youth. And then I'm gonna go to Jonathan to answer that question from the community, right? So I'll say it once more, Trump trying to open um, schools with cops and no additional resources in a global pandemic. What do we need to demand and win in this moment as teachers, as students, and, um, as community and parents. All right, Maura, give it to us.
3: This is such a hard question. You know, I've been involved in a lot of conversations with, uh, teachers all around the country about this one. And I think we have a really difficult job to figure this out because it's not just the question of safety of teachers in schools, right? It's also a question of, of children's development, right? Children's safety, there the ability of parents to do what they need to do. So, you know, I want to just offer that caveat. I think the truth is we should not reopen schools if it's not safe to do so. And that probably means remote education. That said, right, there are folks out there who need to have their children in school for childcare reasons. That's why this country needs universal childcare, right? Like we've done it for our essential workers, for nurses and doctors. We should be thinking hard instead of just asking teachers to make the sacrifice, to put our lives on the line, to open up this Pandora's box of, you know, the virus in school buildings, we should think about what are the other resources we could provide in our communities that would allow us to be safe right now? Um, I think childcare is a huge one, right? Rent control or canceling the rent canceling mortgages is a huge one. Um, so I think Teachers need to demand, right, that we can't enter schools if it's not safe. But at the same time, in the same breath, we need to demand that our communities have the resources they need throughout this pandemic so that people are surviving and thriving.
1: Thank you so much, Maura. And and, um, let's go to Priyana. Talk to us, Priyana.
2: Hi. Personally, from a youth perspective, I do not feel safe being in a school building at all. The only safe option for me, is full remote learning, not A day, B day, not A week, B week. None of that is safe because how do you take into consideration hall passing time or lunchtime or anything? Like, how do you social distance kids in a school? How do you do that? And we, I will never feel safe going back to school, period, with police officers in there. And that is something that I've been extremely vocal about. That And that's something that youth of color have consistently been vocal about. This is something that they do not feel safe, period. They feel threatened and it is just a hostile environment. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Okay. What we need is not to be back in school. What we need is not police officer. What we need is housing. What we need is food. What we need is support for families. What we need is childcare support. In Europe, they supported all of their, their community. And that's how they were able to fight through this, and that's how their numbers have decreased. And they have actually followed; they've been strict on the lockdown and on the quarantine, which we have not done here. But that is a choice, and we have chosen to reopen things not because of it, not because it is safe, but because.
3: Sorry. That's okay.
1: That's okay. Listen, we. This is. This is. This. People out in the audience have to understand we're living our lives in a global pandemic Mm -hmm. and just about anything can occur. My son could be bounding in in any moment and that is okay. And our audience, I am sure, understands that. Go ahead. Go ahead, darling.
2: But as I was saying, they reopened things, not because it was safe to do so, But instead, because from an economic standpoint, which is something that I as I've watched um, meetings or um, newspapers and such, I've seen uh, a habit of the Republicans talking more about economic standpoint in businesses, whereas I've seen Democrats talk more about um, like support supporting the people and the families and what they need and the necessities. And I think before we even discuss going back to schools, that being with police in them, which should not even be an option right now, but before we discuss going back to schools, we need to discuss how we're going to provide for our people. We need to discuss another stimulus check. We need to discuss child care programs,
4: but
1: yeah. Thank you so much, Priyana. All right, Jonathan, give it to us.
4: I mean, it's real simple. Is listen to Priyana. I don't know. I've got, <laughs> 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 I, I absolutely. I think one of the first things we we have to be around is uh, that we don't want to go back to schools uh, that have police in them, right? Um, kind of given what we've seen in the world. I don't know how any uh, youth, a youth of color. Feels uh supported and welcome, being received by a school resource officer. Um, I think uh in absolutely right. There needs to be provisions made. What we're learning about education uh, is its real role in society. Right, it is uh, somewhat a, a an economic uh a driver or support, uh, if you will, as well as for students is also um social. Right, there, there there's uh, ways that they meet that. And I think that those are um. Uh, tensions that we need to be aware of. So we would be like, uh, we would definitely like you, we have to really look at how, again, going back to these Ds, how do we decriminalize? Like, are we going to be arresting uh, students for not wearing masks or not social distancing when they haven't seen their friends for almost what feels like a year or 20 years, right? Like, how are we going to really understand that? Um, And so we have to, I think we need to look at uh, PPE for all and, making that uh, testing. We don't want uh, our schools to become kind of COVID concentration camps where our young people uh, are become these containers of COVID that then bringing back to a community that uh, is suffering under COVID conditions, right? And we got to have to understand kind of currently, right? The majority of of students in American public schools are black and brown students, right? And so they will be returning home to communities that are languishing and suffering under COVID and, and there is no health infrastructure structure in place to help those those families and those communities heal. Um, and then I think there's just a whole thing around how we schools have to be prepared. A lot of the schools that uh, the young people in the Alliance go to, they already didn't have running water. They didn't have soap in the schools, right? So where were they going to wash their hands, right? And so I think there's some things around basic infrastructure, the access to basic human rights. People don't even realize how much of uh, uh, prisons our schools actually have become for uh, black and brown youth in this country. Uh, we want access to mental health uh, counselors. I know young people are tired of their parents right now. They need somebody to talk to. <laughs> um We need social workers and all those things uh, can begin to be paid for by a divestment in policing and an investment. But there needs to be more. Right. We need to really look at class sizes. A lot of the things that a lot of communities have been organizing and fighting for now uh, as we've seen in other, uh, these were kind of the ideas that were laying around now need to be the ideas that we pick up and build for struggle. Right. Um, and so we really need to look at uh, those kind of infrastructures um, and really uh, how do we build a robust um system or or place to be able to do that if we are to reopen. And I think those are uh, questions. And ultimately, it feels like communities really have to figure out how to make that choice together. Uh, And again, oftentimes what we see in so many of of our communities is that uh, those communities have been stripped of their right to decide they don't have elected school boards, they don't have real processes to do that. So I do think there's a, a way that we need to come together, have kind of school assemblies, people's assemblies, to really talk about what it means to go back, what are the set of conditions, what's gonna generate real safety for our communities, um, and actually use this as a moment to, uh, to build health uh, in our in our schools, starting in our schools and then being able to emanate right. It'd be a beautiful to see schools as these healing centers that are allowing um, this safety and learning to happen that then can be a spread, a spread of healing that comes from schools.
1: Wow. Thank you for that. Um, I want to um, remind our audience, if you're just joining us, uh, you tapped into some fantastic uh, panelists that are talking about police-free schools and COVID, um, what it looks like, what it needs to look like uh, to reopen or restart or refashion ourselves, right? Because what was uh, happening before wasn't working. So if it wasn't working then, how in the world are we going to restart or reopen or refashion right now? Where you have the president of the United States saying reopen or else no federal dollars in a global pandemic where we know that communities of color have suffered uh, years decades of disinvestment how do we go back to what was not working before and how do we reimagine re-envision a new day not only for uh, our students but for our educators for our parents and for the communities Jonathan just said, where are the healing spaces? and what can that truly look like? I also want to remind you all, this is a great time for you to start um, writing out your questions in the Q and a box so that we can ask our panelists, our esteemed panelists uh, to give us some knowledge uh, with your Q and a. I also want to remind you, August 3rd, And you're probably saying, well, what is that? So let me tell you that there are a network of not only teachers, national teachers unions, teachers unions, locals, and community orgs that are building a national day of action on August 3rd. It's to demand a safe and equitable reopening of schools specifically without cops, without COVID. We are saying, let us know in the chat if you're interested. Email Eric Zachary at eric at midwestacademy.com for more information. We want that. Uh, we want you to say, you know what? It is time for action. It is time to break down all of these inequities. We are going to need everybody in this fight. This is not a single person, a single individual, a single group. This is all of us in one voice showing collective action to move to hope. Move to hope from horror. Let's move to hope. August 3rd, we'll come back and talk about those things. Um, Let me just say in UTLA, Jonathan brought up the 1033 program. And let me talk about that because I love to talk about the youth, especially the youth in Los Angeles uh, Community Org called Students Deserve, giving them a huge shout out. Uh, Working in tandem with Black Lives Matter L.A., um, really putting in the work. The students have been laboring um, for so long to end random searches how people are searched coming into schools and they went to the school board. They went uh, to the malls when we could and started having these conversations being all over the internet and Instagram and TikTok. They were everywhere. And guess what? The students won on June the 19th of 2019 an end to random searches. Now we're going to have to make sure in this time of COVID that exigent circumstances don't impede that, right? As Jonathan and Priyana spoke about, Maura spoke about, what does it look like for that black male student going to maybe a Dorsey high school or a predominantly black and brown school in the inner city? What does it look like wearing a mask, a do-rag, a hoodie and being stopped by police on the way to school and then getting into the school and then becoming criminalized? We cannot allow exigent circumstances to take hold. We have to say no and we have to end that criminalization. So I am saying I'm just so proud of the youth to do that. They also had a, wanted to end pepper spray. Can you imagine? Pepper spray is not even used in youth detention centers, but it was being used in our schools in Los Angeles. The youth brought that up and folks denied it was happening until now when the students were saying we demand to eliminate the school police. Then all of a sudden, folks said, okay, uh, yeah, you're right, let's get rid of pepper spray. So these things that the students have been fighting for all along, we know that this was just a ploy. But what I love about the students and what Priyana is showing us here is absolute brilliance and resilience. And I'm going to say we have to listen. Jonathan has said it over and over. We have to listen to students like Priyana and all of our other youth, especially our Black youth that are leading this fight in this moment. They want us to listen, and it is our job to do so. So I want to pose this question uh, to Maura want to ask you this question um, to talk about what are some of the victories that you have seen happen in Denver? What are some of the victories that you can share? I'm going to go to Priyana. Priyana touched on it. I want you to dig in and get that. And then, Jonathan, I'm going to end with you. And I know you'll start with, what Priyana said, but I want you to talk about some of the victories that uh, AEJ has been involved
3: in. Laura. All right, this is a good one. Um, I, well, I think one huge one in Denver that's happened last month was that our school board, um, you know, after more than a decade of struggle, um, groups like Padres y Jovenes Unidos had, had worked for a long time over after many, many years of struggle. Um, we had, you know two two or so weeks of protests that popped off, a mass movement in our city, um, you know, in response to the death of George Floyd and others. And we saw a unanimous vote of our school board to end the contract with school resource officers and get police out of Denver Public Schools. Um, and, I, you know, that's just a watershed moment for a lot of folks who've been in the struggle for a long time. Um, and so I think that's something that we're still in the process of celebrating, you know, there's a lot of negative things in this world, but that's one real positive one. That doesn't mean the fight is over, uh, right? We, we know that, you know, like the Black Lives Matter in the school week, there's those four demands, right? That we have to have not only cops out of schools, but also, you know, teachers of color. We have to have uh, Black history and, and ethnic studies, right? We also have to have an end to zero tolerance, disciplinary policies. So I think the, the awareness and the consciousness around those demands is rising. Um, and we're kind of moving on the up and up right now. Mm, yes,
1: all right. You give that to Mora, Priyana. Talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me about some of the victories happening that you've been a part of uh, and and leading.
2: So, I personally, myself, with Leaders Igniting Transformation, the Youth of Color led organization, we, I have been a part of the fight to of a divestment of two hundred and seventeen thousand dollars from a contract that was going to have airport style x-ray metal detectors put in all of our inner city schools so we cut that out um also our school district wanted to have police officers at our freshman bridge which is our freshman orientation we cut that out and then most of all we got the termination of all contracts between the MPS the Milwaukee Public School District and the MPD the Milwaukee Police Department and On top of that, that ended all purchasing of all criminalizing equipment, which included metal detectors, facial recognition, technology, or the ability to track over or to look on students' social media accounts. So that was the biggest one, definitely. But this is a fight that Lit and its students of color have been fighting for for two and a half years now. I was only a part of a a little segment compared to the great things that they have changed. And it's really admirable. But biggest one to get police out of our schools for good this is a fight that our youth have been begging for they've been going to school board meetings they've been testifying even when it was virtual we've been going to school board meetings these long meetings and testifying like I think it is the persistence and the determination of our students that accomplish this so that's what I hope that all school districts are around the world follow our lead in this and we personally I believe before we did it there were three other school districts that did it I think Denver was one of them uh, that cut ties with the police department am I correct And after they did that, they saw a 47 percent decrease in suspension rates. And this data is especially important because we all know suspension rates, expulsions and arrest rates are skewered disproportionately towards black and brown students. So this is just big statistics. But now our fight is not over. We will continue to fight and we will get them to implement all of these proactive safety measures that we have been Talking about for years, this is the restorative justice practices. This is the uh, culturally responsive teaching, the implicit bias trainings, the more support staff in schools. Because when you implement these proactive safety measures, the notion that we even need police officers in schools will decrease greatly.
4: Thank you so much, Jonathan. Me, Jonathan. You know what. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, i mean since uh the the minneapolis uh school board vote um it has led to a watershed of uh victories for folks who've been organizing like we said earlier uh for uh decades um leading up to this um and for us in the in the campaign we were clear what we thought about what we theorized was that if we could win it in one place we could win it in all places and so minneapolis um opened a portal um, Uh, And our groups were organizing in rhythm and ready to step through that portal into a new world. And so we've seen victories um, in Seattle, in Portland, uh, in Oakland, of course, uh, San Francisco, uh, L.A., Denver, as as I always already mentioned. uh, This week, Phoenix has joined us. uh, Columbus this week as well. uh, Milwaukee in Rochester, uh, Madison, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, and, uh, for some of us, we're excited because this is even, uh, beyond the United States. So we have poli- we have folks fighting for police free schools in Canada, uh, who, uh, have won it in Toronto, who was one of the first cities that did it. That we studied. And now they are building their own national campaign uh, for police free schools in Canada. We've reached out, uh, we've heard from have been uh, connecting with folks in London who have been like, we need to get police out of schools in London. We've even heard from folks uh, as far as as India who have been also interested in figuring out how to get uh, police out of their schools. And so we feel really um, excited about the victories. Again, um, we say that this is the beginning of struggle, not its end. There's so much more to be won, so much more to be built towards a liberatory education. But what I'm most excited about is actually Priyana, <laughs> because when when we started this work in, in 2015, it was me and five kids on a stage in uh, Durham, North Carolina at a youth organizing conference Pledging to protect Nia Kenny and Shakara to get those charges dropped and to build a national campaign for police free schools. And we have done that. We've almost, these young people have created a movement. And so when we understand uh, Black Lives Matter, police free schools is their Black Lives Matter. Uh, and they have shown us the way and a path to victory. And we just have to follow them. We just have to follow them, and that is what's most exciting uh, about uh, this moment. And those are some of the real victories to see the thousands of people out in the street in Oakland, uh, fighting for police-free schools. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. To see all the pictures from LA, beautiful, beautiful. So, for us uh, and for me as an organizer, to see the people organizing, fighting, and winning uh, what they care about, what they dream about, um, is is most exciting. And one of the things that I uh, treasure, and I think that we can, again, use to uh, for us to bring into this moment, as you say, as we're at this crossroad of horror and hope, young people are pointing us towards the direction of hope, and we only have to follow them. Thank you, Jonathan.
1: I want to go hit it over to Maura, and I I, I want to ask you this question. We may have some audience members, or and, and they're going back to, you know, virtual school site meetings, right? And How do we deal with the teacher fears, the educator fears that there could be a school shooting? And I love the school police and I have to have the school police. How do we reconcile those fears, those very real fears that folks are feeling around school police, how it links to safety, And as an educator, and you said as a white educator, how do we speak to folks to get them to listen to Priyana and the Priyanas in their schools?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's gotta start with honesty, right? Like we live in a nation that is oppressive, right? We have cities that are segregated. And frankly, like a lot of the schools, in urban districts, we have a majority of black and brown students who are working class people. And we have a majority of teachers who are white middle-class people. And that creates a disconnect um, because a lot of these teachers, you know, myself included didn't have the experience of walking the streets and being afraid of a cop, right? And, and that's not possible for me to walk in somebody else's shoes, but I can understand that I didn't have that experience. And I think when I push on my colleagues to say, oh, you think you're afraid of school shootings? think police kill three times more people than have been killed in school shootings. And that's just facts, right? Like we have these fears that are real and it's not to say that, you know, to get down on anybody for being afraid of, you know, thinking about that, that kind of eventuality in your classroom um, and the effect it might have on your, your students. But the truth is, is we need to think harder about the experiences our kids are having. Um, And act like we have a little bit of empathy. Um, and you know, frankly, I've encountered police in my building. And, you know, I think this one of this one anecdote where we had the police, the police in Denver did spent something like $50,000 on doing a live shooter simulation with paintball guns, where they made this incredible, like complicated thing, shot people up with paintball guns. And then they went around to every single school in the district and made teachers watch it for some reason. And it's like, that doesn't make me safer. I thought it was scary. Uh, It didn't teach me how to respond to any situation. And it was just you all playing cops and robbers with your vests on, right? Um, Wasting a bunch of money when what we actually need to do is deal with the mental health issues that our kids have, right? So I would say to folks who are afraid of school shootings to think back to the root issues, right? Where are our young people going so wrong that they want to put a gun in their backpack when they come to school? And what can we do before it ever gets to that point? What resources do we need to move to that point? And how can we empathize with the young people who are surrounding us every day in order to actually address the problems that are the most pressing?
1: Thank you, Maura, for that. I wanna hit this over to Jonathan. How do we bring more black parents into the work of educator unions? So you, you, you're a community organization. How do we bring more black parents into that work and be able to center their voices within the, the confines of the educator union?
4: Yeah, I mean, again, that's a that's another courageous conversation that we have to ask, because we have to ask uh, where where there seems to be a natural alliance and alignment. Why is there disalignment and disunity? Um, And uh, as Morris pointed out, we can only look at a white supremacy and racism as a as a as a means to breaking that natural alliance and that that uh, alignment that would exist around the education of, of a child. And so um, yeah, so for us I think Part, Or at least for me, part of the question, uh, part of also the answer is that parents also need their space uh, to organize and to find their voice. I think that we can look to examples like the Journey for Justice Alliance, which is a national network of black and uh, communities of color organizing across the country as a really great example of um, where folks can, we can learn from them what it takes and some of their lessons, uh, that they've had around trying to work with teachers unions, uh, and be able to, to forward those and advance those. And so I think that they're, again, as we, uh, as, as G2 Brown likes to say, he's clear that he has more in common with the teacher than he does with a privatizer, right? I think there is some common ground that we need to explore and define. And, And for me, uh, as a Again, as a, an organizer and, and one kind of moving in a, an abolitionist ideology, I think that abolition, again, offers a space and a place for us all to be in and contribute. And so when we think about, again, the history of abolition in this country, there were white abolitionists. There were black abolitionists, there were brown abolitionists, there were men abolitionists, there were women abolitionists, abolitionists come in all different types of colors, creeds, shapes, uh, orientations, right? And that uh, we're bounded by this ideology of trying to end exploitation. Uh, and I think that that begins to set some common ground around what we're about, what we're trying to build together, um, particularly when it comes to the education of our children. Um, but there. Yeah, it, just, it starts with a, a some conversation uh, with folks around how to do it, how to do it well, learning, learning from the expertise of, of parent organizers and really being able to. Uh, really reconcile with some of the the past and being a, a a movement towards, like you said, at a crossroads towards a new vision, and that requires some um, some repairing some of some harm that has happened historically and going on currently, uh, and new promises uh, towards to be in relationship with each other moving forward.
1: Thank you for that. Um, I do want to mention that we have a Google folder uh, with resources in the chat. We ask that you take those resources and share them because when we're talking about police-free schools, we're talking about what does it look like to reopen schools right now. Uh, We definitely need some resources because we're gonna have to bring uh, our colleagues along in a different way. Um, I want to go to you, Priyana. You you spoke about having uh, cultural pedagogy, right? You talked about, um, and I, I'm just going to assert ethnic studies um, to really talk about ethnic studies. So some of the courses that you would like to see in your school, right? Instead of funding uh, police and cops in your school? What are some of those type of programs that you touched on? I want you to dig in and tell educators what you want to see. So when you come into a classroom and folks have their curriculum, you know, as as Jonathan says, you know, um, you have that same textbook that has been there since 1995. How do you mix it up for a Priyana... uh, Uh, Cabral. uh, How do we, uh, Cabral, sorry. Uh, How do we mix it up um, to really teach, to inspire um, our youth? Um, So please talk to us um, as educators. We need to hear your voice in this matter. Thank you.
2: Thank you. For myself, I'm someone that piles up on AP classes to get the best knowledge that I can, especially when it comes to history. It's something that is consistent and repetitive within all the schools I've went to and all the curriculum that I've learned is I keep learning the white man's story. And I guess they say the winner is whose story gets told. I guess that's apparent. But I find it weird how we're taught to glorify killers (laughs) such as Christopher Columbus and Alexander the Great they're glorified. And then in the same way that we're taught to like, hate our own people for crime. But I'm so tired of learning the white man's story and the white man's history. And I'm tired of glorifying these people that were criminals, real criminals. But since they're white, they're superior and that's who we are taught to learn about from the day that we're young. I actually, when I was in sixth grade, I wrote a paper on why Christopher Columbus was great because I was in Mequon and that's what, that's a suburban school district in Wisconsin and that's what I was taught. And this money, it needs to go towards resources. It needs to go to new curriculum because we have old textbooks in our school. And I can see that in suburban schools, they have new technology. They have computers available for everybody. We have our only extracurriculum sort of class that we offer is psychology. Whereas when I went to these suburban schools, they had home ed. When I was in sixth grade, I had a class, took a class in a suburban school district about financial literacy. Our kids deserve to learn the same stuff too. It is just, as valuable in their life as it is in theirs. I want to see us go on more field trips. We don't have, we don't get field trips. Somebody's not funded. I'd like to see um, us implement some of the practices that I mentioned before, such as restorative justice practices. And the reason why I said the notion that we would need police in school would decrease because of that is because putting police in school or arresting students or suspending students is just a band-aid problem. That does not solve anything. That does not solve the greater problem. But if you implement these actual restorative justice practices or if you implement these actual de-escalation trainings, they will solve the root problem. And they will give students, provide students with holistic approaches to these problems that would de-escalate situations instead of further escalating them and creating a larger problem at the end. I would like to see an end to all seclusions and restraints of students in school Mm -hmm. because it's never that serious. I would like to see us have the same opportunities, the same classes offered, the same field trips, the same technology, the same curriculum, the same newer books. Um, And I would like to see us as our counter, our white counterparts, and I would like to see us learn about our history. As many AP classes have I, as, I, as I've taken, and as many history classes as, as I've taken, I've never once learned about the history of Africa.
3: Mm,
4: mm, mm.
2: Only about slavery, and when that's all that we're taught, and when you look up Africa or you look up slavery, you see the poorest parts in these dirt poor pictures. And I, for one, know that Africa is beautiful. Why don't we learn about that? Why do we learn about the culture? Why don't we learn about uh, the rich, great, why do we worship and glorify the rich, great Musa in Africa? Why are we instead glorifying Christopher Columbus? Why are there statues of Christopher Columbus? I'm tired of that. I'm tired of learning the white man's history. And then if you don't mind, if I can even touch base on the question that you asked Maura about what I would say to a teacher or even students Please do. in school because of um, their fear of school shootings. I would just like to add that there were police outside of Parkland. That didn't stop anything. There have been police and metal detectors outside of nearly all schools since Columbine and that did not stop anything. And let's not forget where school shootings take place. Let's not forget that predominantly white schools are the schools that have school shootings. Let's not forget that white predominantly... No, I'm just gonna say it. Let's not forget that white people are the perpetrators of school shootings, but why are we policing black and brown schools? Why are we criminalizing black and brown schools if it if evidence of research is showing us it's apparent that our white counterparts are the ones that are typically committing this crime. And I know for one of the suburban schools that surround my inner city school do not have metal detectors. I know that they do not have police. I know that they do not have security guards. If they're the ones committing the crime that you are so afraid of, then why don't you do the same thing that you're doing to them? Why are we the ones feeling like criminals? Why are we the ones that are being affected by the school to prison to deportation pipeline?
1: Yeah, that's all I have to say, thank you. And yes, um, that was the mic drop. Thank you. Um, you know, and, and it's always to me. I always um, love hearing from the youth. Uh, it's no disrespect to community orgs or or my fellow educators, but I do love hearing from the youth because the youth are going to tell it like it is, and the way that the way that we need to hear it. But it also takes us listening, dropping that effective filter, dropping the the defensiveness and hearing truth. And that's what um, Priyana brought us here today is some actual truth. And I would just ask that our audience members take that truth in And and let's figure out how we change, how we go from horror to hope. How do we do it? Not only for ourselves, but for our youth. So, Mara, I want to ask you um, and then I'm going to wrap up. I have one last question to wrap up with, but I want to just throw this out there. So I talked about August 3rd and I was like, you know, it's collective, it's a day of action. Should educators right now be prepared to strike if we don't win these type of demands for a safe, equitable reopening? Your honest opinion, I I just, I, I just wanna hear it from you.
3: My honest opinion is hell yeah. Don't call my union president. I said that maybe, but yes, absolutely. Right on. I mean, what else, What more pressing issue is there than our safety and the safety of our community, right? Like, what better reason is there for us to, to throw a little people power around? That's right. All right. Priyana's like,
1: yes, you're down with that. You are. Uh, Jonathan, how are you feeling
4: about that? Absolutely. I think that, uh, again, this is some common ground where teachers and students can be like, we're not going back to schools with COVID and cops in them. And I think this is, again, uh, rich ground for us to, again, uh, move towards hope, repair what has been harmed and promise to together build a new future and to reimagine schools, to reimagine safety. So absolutely.
1: And the full liberation of our people, the absolute full liberation of our people. (laughs) I just want to make sure that we put that in there. So the last question uh, for all you beautiful panelists. So the top three to four, and you can be brief, the top three to four things you feel that we need to win in order to usher ourselves back into physical schools, three to four things we need to win to usher ourselves back into schools. Remember I said in the beginning, we were talking about the crossroads of horror and hope. So how do we get that hope? How do we get that aspiration? How do we lead in this moment? So I'm gonna go with Jonathan first, then I'm going to hit it with Maura, and then I'm going to close with uh, Priyana. Jonathan.
4: Absolutely. I think we, wanna, we want to, one, we want police-free schools. Uh, I think we, we want to talk about uh, PPE for all, that we want to protect all our people. Um, we also want to talk about uh, a massive reinvestment in public education and its infrastructure where it's most needed. Uh, I feel like those are my top three things that are gonna help move us uh, towards that. And then for communities that don't have it, uh, community, a uh, return to community control of their schools. Again, in this moment of crisis, uh, communities need to be seen as critical partners and allies in helping to make this decision. Because if you make it without them, uh, community, then, you you're just really inviting fire into your chest. Mm. All right.
3: Maura. I'll say number one is resources. Um, We need the money, we need the dollars. Like I saw somewhere that an F-22 one plane is $150 million. $150 million could cut every single class size in Denver in half for a year. That's 3,000 teacher salaries we spend on one plane. We need resources in our schools. not only for the classrooms, but for wraparound services. That's my two. We need wraparound services. We need healthcare. We need childcare. We need food and housing. Um, and then number three, I guess, I want to echo what Jonathan said. We need community power and solidarity. I know that's not a thing exactly, but it's it's a movement, right? We need to have our students and our teachers, our families, everybody working together um, to, to put that power behind our demands. Thank you.
2: Brianna? Okay. First thing is definitely police-free schools. And with police-free schools, the money that would be invested into, poli- into police-free schools, we need to make sure it goes towards these proactive safety measurements that I listed before. I don't think I need to say them again, but in case, restorative justice practices, implicit bias trainings, culturally responsive education, de-escalation trainings, All of those. We need those to be invested into that. We need more resources. We need to. We need more equality within our education system, despite the color of your skin or the color of the skin that predominantly attends these schools, or despite the neighborhood in which the school is in. Uh, We need support for family, students, and community. Whether this is housing, whether this is childcare, whether this is another stimulus check, or whether this is technology to support students while they are doing remote learning at home. And then most of all, we need youth leadership in the conversation. If we're going to, because of the recent events, this has been brought up again. And clearly the officer that killed Breonna Taylor, the officer that killed George Floyd, they they were what we envisioned as safety in the United States. So clearly we need to reinvent what safety means to us and what safety means to our Black and Brown students. And with that. We need students and youth in this conversation because this is something that affects them. This is their stories. And then, most of all, I just need you all to listen. And I think you did a very good job today. I see in the hashtag, listen to Priyana. Because when I'm speaking, I'm not speaking for myself. I'm speaking for my friends. I'm speaking for youth of color. I'm speaking for inner city school districts. I'm speaking for the racial and economic disparities in our education system. I'm speaking for the systematic racism in our education system, the systematic racism in our healthcare system. And I personally, myself, I'm a 4.3 student who piles up on AP classes and I value my education like nothing else. But if there is not a safe and equitable reopening in schools, if we do not have staff to support both our physical and mental health, that's nurses and counselors. If we do not have these practices in place, I will not go back to school. Okay,
1: thank you so much. So what I'm hearing from the panel um, is that, we have to lead with love. We have to definitely see the humanity, not only in our communities, but our youth. And that this is that moment that's calling us to come out of the, the bowels of horror into hope.
0: Um,
1: the Google chat has the, or the chat has the Google folder of resources that we need you to, to To obtain and share with your colleagues on police free schools. Um, You know, I feel that teaching is a revolutionary act. Um, How I go into my classroom is absolutely looking at the humanity of every single student that I come in contact with. And we're asking you to do the same. We're asking you to not only see that humanity, but let's start breaking down and dismantling the very foundations of racist ideologies, white supremacy culture, and become an anti-racist educator, an anti-racist educator that breaks down. Um, all policies and programs that uh, lead to the school-to-prison pipeline, that we should have ethnic studies as a right and not a privilege for every youth um, in our schools. It's time to reimagine what it looks like because um, what it was before uh, wasn't good enough. It's never been good enough, and this is the time in covid that we can change something dramatically. It's time for us to be empowered, be inspired and to organize. I spoke about August 3rd as a collective day of action um, within our locals, within the states. And I wanna know in the audience, who is down for an August 3rd come together moment with not only the panelists and organizations and Black Lives Matter, and all of us, who is down to get in this fight with students, parents, and the community and educators to actually say, we have to move from horror to hope. We have to demand better. We must demand from our federal government, uh, Trump, Uh, the potential nominee, Biden, uh, our Congress, that in a global pandemic, you need to fund our schools. They have been decimated too long. We must fund our schools. It is the time to do that. Who is down? Show me in the chat that you're down to organize something, whether it be having a press conference, whether it uh, is going to a bank, Whatever it may be to say absolutely not, the profiteers will not get over because it. we are talking about people, not profits. So we want to make sure that we are on that. This is the moment right now that we can actually be a catalyst for change to re-envision what is truly possible for ourselves and our youth. Our schools are places and spaces for learning and creativity and building those long-lasting relationships. It is the time to be bold and be creative and step out of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We can imagine something different for our students and for ourselves. And saying that police-free schools is the answer. We have got to say this and believe it because we want our students to be scholars, not suspects. This is the time. This is the moment. What side are you on? Are you going to be on the side of the youth in this fight? Or are we going to be on a different side? We are asking, Priyana and all of the youth are asking us in this moment to decide what we are going to do. I know that I have to look at my son and all of the youth, and I want him to know that mom and the rest of the educators, the rest of the students, the rest of the community were standing on the side of righteousness in this fight, in this moment. It is up to us to imagine something different, to imagine something different for our babies. Now is that time. Our students deserve it. We deserve it because we've got to do more than survive. We have got to thrive. We want to thank you for coming to this session. We hope that you share it far and wide to your networks. We wanna make sure that you are opening up uh, streams of dialogue, whether it be on social media platforms or in chat rooms or with your colleagues. Use this virtual time to have some Zoom conversations so that we can start to imagine a radically different idea for our youth. We thank you. Much respect. Let's get this. Let's win. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.